And hello, everyone. It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Well, and normally on this show, I do not allow my interviewees to tap dance around my questions. But uh, today, I had to make an exception. My name is Andrew Nimmer, and I'm a tap dancer. Andrew Nemmer has been hoofing almost as long as he's been walking. He's schooled with some of the best, like Gregory Hines and Savion Glover and Jimmy Slide. And uh, this being the 4th of July weekend, what better time to celebrate what is, after all, an American creation. Of course, tap has old-world ancestry in uh, things like Irish step dancing and European clogging and African-based juba dance. But... It really all came together as a new modern art form over here. And what better person to lead us through some of that history than Andrew Nemmer? He's not only a seasoned performer, he's a serious student of tap history. So join me as Andrew retraces his own steps and those of some of his tap predecessors, occasionally letting his feet do the talking. You know, that is one of the great things about tap. Unlike most dance forms, it actually works on radio. I started tap dancing when I was three and a half. I'm an only child, and my parents wanted me to do something with other kids. Uh, They were immigrants from Lebanon. They landed in Canada uh, first from Beirut, and then by the time I was three, we were in Alexandria, Virginia. And they sat me down around the dining room table and said, we think you should do something with other kids. And I said, okay, I guess that's a smart idea. Uh, And they said, well, there's a dance school down the street. Would you want to watch one? I said, okay, it sounds like a good idea. So we went and I saw it and I said, yeah, I'll I'll try. Was it love at first attempt or did it take a while? It was, I want to do this well at first attempt. The stories are that I was the kid in the three to four year old class that come recital, you know, everybody walks on stage and there's always one kid that's kind of pointing other kids in the right place, that was me. So kind of a recreational thing, yeah, originally? Surely, yeah. At what point did it become a passion and an art for you? It became a passion when I saw the movie Tap. You know, in the dancing school years, it was recognized that I had a knack for it, and I was you know, physically aware, I could move my body, I had good time, which is a big deal with tap dancers. So I went through kind of the competitive scene and getting a private lesson with my teacher and then the performing arts group and doing the the school performances outside of the recital. And then in 1989, on opening night in Washington, D.C., got my folks and can we go to this? Yes, we can. We see opening night of the movie Tap. With Gregory Hines. With Gregory Hines and Sammy Davis Jr. and Savion Glover, who was, I think, 14 years old in the film. And... There's one scene, the challenge scene in that movie where Jimmy Slide and Arthur Duncan and Bunny Briggs and Pat Rico and Sandman Sims and Harold Nicholas and Henry Latang is on the piano and each one of them comes out and does something. And I'm sitting there and I'm nine years old and I'm saying, I have never seen anything like that in my life. (laughs) I don't even know what it's called, but that's what I want to do. So the tap dancing you'd been doing before that was... It was all unison. You know, you Uh have a group of kids, they're all doing the same thing. Large production numbers, like 30, 40 kids in the opening and closing number of the recital. Um, T for two? Yeah, (laughs) like big band (laughs) stuff, you know. Um, 
which is great. It was just very, very rigid. You know, there wasn't a sense of personal expression. It was all perf performative. And th what I saw in the film, in the movie Tap, was definitely not. It had, it had all the exuberance of an amazing performance and all the energy, but it had all the individualism of something that came from very deep within every one of those dancers. And history, a lot of history. So how did you then plug into that world? Divine intervention by way of an advertisement in a newspaper. So we had no idea what that was called other than rhythm tap. Like we heard this phrase as opposed to Broadway or theatrical show tap, tap dancing, show tap. Yeah. Right? So we start looking in the newspaper for anything that says rhythm tap. And lo and behold, there's an advertisement for a brand new rhythm tap dance company that's starting in Washington, D.C. And it would be, it would end up being the National Tap Ensemble and went to the audition, tried out, and the artistic director said, you have good feet, but you have no ear. <laughs> so if you promise to learn to listen over the next couple of years, we'll, we'll bring you in. I said, sure, I promise, <laughs> no problem. So we got into that dance company and that was kind of a step away, like one degree from what I had seen in the film. The artistic director had learned from Honey Coles, who was one of the older generation, amazing dancer. Uh, but what he was doing was more modern dance influenced and still an ensemble base. And then one day he hands me a flyer that says, Gregory Hines and Savion Glover teaching workshops, New York City, and my mouth drops. Because my dream was to meet Gregory Hines. That was it. After I saw the film, that's all I wanted to do. But I had given myself 30 years to do it. Because <laughs> I, I figured, I mean, I need to have a career. I need to become famous enough to be in some space where he is. And then bump into him and then have stuff to talk about and say thank you. And this, you know, you were the inspiration for all of this. It's like a year later. And I get this flyer and I realize that he's reachable. And I run to my parents and I say, can we actually do this? And my mom asked my dad and they say, yeah, I think we can. So we hop in the car and we do the six hour ride to New York City. And I meet Gregory and Savion in the same day. It's back to back oh classes. Yeah, I, I had a nervous breakdown on the way up. Like in the car ride, I just started crying. Um, my mom thought something was wrong and you know she's like we can turn around and go home and I said, no no <laughs> just keep the car going to new york <laughs> i'll be fine it, but what was it about why were you so overwrought i had i had 30 years to go <laughs> <laughs> you know, i was running 29 years ahead of schedule and i mean for for most for most of my life i've kind of been that way that i have a plan i set the plan out and then it gets turned on its head completely. I have to do the plan. Like I have to set it, but then I have to immediately let go of that plan and then everything's cool. But I hadn't learned that yet. <laughs> Were you afraid though that like you wouldn't, you weren't ready, you wouldn't measure up in the presence of these tap masters? Probably. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I remember I learned nothing from Savion's class, like absolutely nothing. I was standing front row center. I was right behind him, but he taught in real time at that point, this is 1990, 1991. And he would do a step real time and say, okay, cool, everybody, now you go. And I'm standing there going, I don't even know what you just did. Well, how could you? The guy is a prodigy. It was amazing. What ended up happening is six months after the workshop, Savion comes down to DC 
to do a series of residencies. They would be annual and part of his NEA grant. And I ended up in those residencies. And over the course of time, I ended up being that kid that would steal on site from him because he couldn't remember stuff that he did in real time. Which, I mean, that, and that's a challenge most improvisers deal with. You're continually putting stuff out that to go back and say, okay, what was that step that I just did? You're already on the next one mentally. Mm. So there's always someone in the room that catches and is able to say, okay, I think this is something like what you just did. And I ended up being that guy. So from the first workshop in which nothing latched, like nothing sat at all, to being that kid, I think is kind of an interesting journey. Absolutely. And it sounds like, um, whereas before you had a bad ear but good feet, you somehow got a good ear. Yeah. Yeah, we started listening really well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I have neither good ears nor good feet. Oh, gosh. When I, when I see you doing what you're doing, it's, it's magic to me. All these sounds coming from often really small movements, right? It's interesting. There's a little bit of a trick to that. Because the movements that I actually request are large. And I've spent time in the room doing really big things with my body. And then I try and request those movements in a very short, short amount of time. And I let the body resolve it. So I'm not in the middle of that process. When you say request, what do you mean? I ask my feet to do things. Oh, do you? Yeah. <laughs> you ask them. You don't tell them. No. Because <laughs> they can say no sometimes. <laughs> and they have things that they like that I don't know yet. So you're saying um, that you don't have it all worked out before you, Not say, go all. on stage? Not at all. You're inventing yeah. on the spot? Inventing is a tough word. Sometimes that happens. Not always. But oftentimes it's, let's see what's going to come out from what I already know. Or from what my feet already know that I've forgotten. Wow. Well, I'd like to invite you and request that your feet do something right now. How's that? Sure. Yeah, <laughs> why not? Andrew, so much happened there. Yeah. How many techniques did I witness just now? There are probably two main ones. Uh, one has to do with an articulation in the ankle. So tap dancers have one metal plate at the front of their foot and one in the back under the heel. And articulating the, the separation between those two uh, is more of a controlled technique. Rocking back and forth. Rocking back and forth, making sure the heel doesn't drop when you don't want it to. Uh, so landing just on the balls of your feet and staying there. And then the second one is a more uh, loose ankle technique 
where the majority of the motion comes from higher up the organizational chart, as I like to call it. <laughs> so it's like coming from your hip or your knee. And then that allows the foot to strike the floor multiple times without the ankle being involved. And uh, it seems like the higher sounds are coming from the toe, some of the lower sounds from the from heel. From the heel, yeah. And you threw in a move um, where you actually use the side of the taps. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of rocked out onto the side of your feet. Yeah, so the there's, there's a a very narrow tonal range that you can get from tap dancing. So we end up doing as much as we can to expand it, <laughs> right? If we just hit the floor flat on the bottom of the taps, you get maximum four notes, right? Two on each feet, right. on each foot. And so we end up using the sides, maybe the, the top of the toe tap to go in the back, just the, the back of the heel tap. Um, so you get some higher pitched, notes and then you can start using drags or slides to get um, kind of like a drum brushes or you could throw a little sand on the floor and get some uh, rustling sounds. and that's a whole nother vocabulary (laughs) yeah (laughs) truly when you became then an apprentice am i is that a good way of putting it to to people like gregory hines yeah i mean we should say we're we're jumping ahead in history here from those first classes (laughs) to becoming a a serious student of Mm -hmm. some masters right Mm mm-hmm you studied with Gregory Hines? Gregory Hines, Savion, uh, and was able to be under the wing of Jimmy Slide, Buster Brown, uh, Leroy Myers, Face Roberts, Brownie Brown. A lot of the older guys would not, wasn't really considered like a formal apprenticeship. It was more like you're now in their circle. And by being in their circle, they might pull you aside one day and give you 30 seconds of advice that will last you five years to figure out and implement and become part of your vocabulary and your, your work. Face Roberts did that with me at the bar one time. You know, we're, we're just hanging out. The copacetics who are uh, very instrumental in the resurgence of tap dance in terms of the popular revival in the 70s uh, was headed up by Honey Coles and a number of dancers that were Uh, in their prime in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. And Face Roberts was one of them. Uh, He can be seen as a member of the Five Blazers in Black and Tan Fantasy, the Duke Ellington film, doing the one-man dance, which is an amazing dance clip. So I get to be around this guy, and he comes up to me. (laughs) We were sitting at the bar. Uh, The Copacetic's official, unofficial hangout was a club called Showman's, which is still around in Harlem. So every Thursday night, there used to be a tap jam, and we'd go up there and hang out, and whoever was around from the copacetics, so long as it wasn't raining, they'd come out too. And Face was there one day, and I was there, and he just pulled me over, and he said, listen, the way people are tap dancing today is wrong. And I said, okay, wait a second, I need to, <laughs> I need to sit down, and you need to tell me more about this. He said, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you. He said, people aren't doing time steps anymore. He said, we used to come out, you do one time step at the center, one time step to the left of the stage. Wait, what's that mean? So a time step is an eight-bar phrase. Like? Uh, like, the, like a phrase of jazz music. So can you voice like an a example of what a time step is? Sure. If, if it would sound something like... Right? 
And so you have six bars of repetition and then a break. And so what Face was saying was that tap dancers in his generation would come out and they would have a series of these time steps, different rhythms, but all in the format of this six bar repetition and then a break. So you do one center stage, you do one stage left, mm. one stage right, and one back to center, and you finished a chorus of music, which is the melody when the, when the actual song is playing, and you've introduced yourself to the audience, and now you can dance. Uh-huh. He said, we never used to come out and just start dancing. Like, that's <laughs> wrong. <laughs> and I was sitting there going, oh my gosh, I have to really sit with this now. <laughs> well, every generation has its standards. Sure. And every new generation violates them, right? And every, I came to find out that every dancer within a generation has their own standards too. Yeah. You know, having been around a bunch of the old guys, they all would have their right way and sometimes they wouldn't match up. So what I came to find out and begin to slowly understand was that each one of them was kind of an exemplification of a particular area of tap dancing which was had to be this larger thing because it's not i couldn't believe that all of them were wrong and only <laughs> one guy was right right so you know what are the commonalities what made them all be in a in the same craft work but have such specific ideas of the application or the the process to get to the end mm-hmm. um a guy like Jimmy Slide believed that motion begat sound. Huh. So all of his dancing is motion-based. Yeah, I should say for people who haven't seen him, and they can see him uh, on YouTube. Uh, in fact, they could go to the, the site that you helped found or that you founded, mm-hmm. taplegacy.org. Mm-hmm. They can find your YouTube channel, and they can find some beautiful clips of Jimmy Slide. Magnificent dancer, very visual graceful, lighter than air, floats while tapping. Yeah, it's amazing. He used to say that he would, he would do something and then slide and then do something else and the slide would function as a breath for him uh. and a way for the sound to catch up <laughs> to where he was. <laughs> right, yeah, he says that in one of the clips. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's so interesting. So his idea was that it should start with movement. It starts with motion. And then not you start with, making sounds. Not with sound. Whereas there's others who do exactly the opposite, right? Mm-hmm. There are others that are very uh, sound-based, so their body isn't already in motion. Mm-hmm. It's like you, you feel it coming from their feet up. And slide was definitely upside down. Is that really one of the biggest splits in tap between those people who are focused on their feet Sometimes they're kind of low to the ground. Sometimes they're even looking down. And they're not doing a lot with their hands, their arms. They're not floating across the stage. They're producing fantastic rhythms. And the other guys who are this visual, balletic, you know, display and tapping at the same time, right? Yeah, I, th- I, think, I think there's always a balance, right? So tap dancing is sound and movement. And so we're always reconciling those two things to get to the final whatever it is we're doing in a moment. And so you'll have those guys who are excessively musical and that's all they're doing. And so the image, it's not that they're not aware of it, but they're not concerned with that. And then there, there are the dancers who are excessively concerned with imagery and so they'll sacrifice rhythms and they'll 
allow the rhythm to serve the imagery. And then there are guys who try to do both. And I think Slide was one of those cats. Is Slide his real name? No. <laughs> his real name is James Titus Godbolt. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of names in Tap Dad's history that are stage names, right? Some yeah. of the, a lot of the greats going all the way back, I don't know, to prehistory of Tap, I suppose. Master Juba. Yeah, right? sure. Um, Bubbles. William, yep. William Sublet. William Sublet. Yeah. Who became John Bubbles. John Bubbles, yeah. Right. One of the truly great guys. Yeah. Well, um, I want to dive into history with you a little bit more. Sure. But before we do that, you talked about becoming part of the circle of mm -hmm. some of the great living tap masters. Yeah. How did you get into the circle? We, we were at a point when you were young and learning. Um, how long did that take and what did you do to accomplish that? So when I met Savion and Gregory, that was kind of the door cracking open. Um, the workshops were held at a venue called Woodpeckers in New York City, which was the home of the American Tap Dance Orchestra in the 80s, which is one of the few tap dance ensembles during that time. And they would bring in Buster and Honey and a lot of the old cats, particularly the, the copacetics, to their events. So, okay, so now I have a place that I can come to and I see these cats. And how old are you at this time? Nine, ten, oh, eleven. Oh, you're still a kid. Yeah, okay. I'm still a kid. Savion's coming to D.C. for the residencies. And my family and his family become friends. Like, my mom is always around, his mom is always around. So they start talking while we're in rehearsals. And so I, I kind of make it a point just to show up and make myself available to show up. So whenever anything is going on, I try and be there. Gregory took to me from the first class for some reason. I remember very specifically, I'm waiting in line to go into the restroom and my dad's sitting on a bench. Gregory walks by my father, up a set of stairs, stops, turns around, comes back, talks to my dad, and then leaves. And while he's talking, you know, like they're pointing at me and turns out Greg asked my father, is like, is that your son? My dad says, yeah. He's like, good kid. Turns around wow. and books it. <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, I wanted to talk to him. Like, why did he talk to you? <laughs> and I'm thinking that this is at a time uh, after Tap has come out, the movie, mm -hmm. uh, when a lot of kids are probably rushing yeah. into the, the art form and wanting to be you know, work that at the feet guy, of, yeah. of, yeah, and so you're the chosen one, or one of them. One of them, I mean... Do you have any idea why? No. Well, talent, probably. I doubt it. Really? Yeah, <laughs> I, really, I really doubt it, because at 9 and 10 years old, when I was first meeting these guys, I had zero skill, particularly compared to other kids that were around me. I honestly believe it had something to do with the fact that I was there, and I was there consistently, and they were very intuitive people. So it's like, oh, that kid. So we're going we're gonna to let you come in and then see what happens. And I was, I was very timid. I was very shy. Uh, Gregory would open up every one of his classes for an improv jam at the end of them. And at Woodpeckers, one year he just had all of us sit down. So in order to... To do anything, you had to get up and then do something and then sit back down. And so I'm sitting there and I just switched my legs one year and everybody's like, yeah, no, not yet. 
Mm. <laughs> it's like maybe, and then the leg comes back in. It's like maybe not. So it took a couple of years of just that going on. Savion and Gregory also did something really special with me, which was if any of the older guys were around, they would push me to go talk to them. Like instead of me asking them a question, they would say, go ask, go ask Slide or go ask Chaney or go ask Buster because they're here. We would be asking them, mm. so you should go ask mm. them. And so that allowed me this, you know, in terms of the lineage, I was able to kind of go around Savion and Gregory and have my own relationships with the old guys uh, and ladies. I mean, Mabel Lee, who's still alive and 92 years old, um, caught me when in one of the jam sessions and I got to meet her and sit with her and talk to her and we've become great friends over the past couple of years. So yeah, you said the, the magic word, lineage. The really great tap dancers are part of a lineage. You learned from Gregory Hines and Savion Glover and you're saying you had a direct relationship with the older generation. Who did Gregory Hines learn from? Henry Latang. And who did Henry learn from? Buddy Bradley. <laughs> yeah. Keep going. Keep going. Oh gosh, who was I have no idea who Buddy Bradley's teacher was. But there's always a moment. So Henry Henry started in a local dance studio in Harlem, and I don't remember their name, but he told me this story. He said at one point his teacher told his mother, he's like, I can't teach him anymore. You need to go take him to Buddy. And Buddy had a studio in Midtown, Manhattan. And Buddy Bradley was the star choreographer at the time. And so Henry walked into the studio and it was basically, okay, well, if I'm going to teach you, you're going to stand in the spare studio. I'm going to come in, show you two bars worth of stuff, and then I'm going to leave you and you're just going to work. And that was his learning relationship with Buddy. Um, it was never formal classwork. And that's kind of what my relationship has been with all of, all of my mentors is that you find them when you can find them. They give you something and then you go and you work on it. And then somehow they remember what they have told you. And so the next time you meet them, they're going to very slyly test you on what it is that they remember having told you last. And if you've, if you've settled with that, then they'll give you something else. And if you haven't, they'll kind of let you dissipate for the moment, <laughs> you know, give you some space because they're not going to share anything else with you. I have an idea. Um, would it be possible for you to maybe um, demonstrate some specific lessons you've picked up over the years from individuals? Are there steps that you could say, oh, this is one that Gregory Hines taught me, or this is one... I mean, I can, I can play rhythms, but a lot of what I've learned is process. You know, learning, learning how to be patient on a stage is something that Greg taught me. What, what's that mean, patient on a stage? So if you listen to a really young jazz player, right, most of them try and fit as many notes as possible into one phrase. And if you listen to that same player 50 years later, they're only playing the notes that they know are important to play. That's true in so many art forms. Mm -hmm. People learn economy. Yeah. Efficiency. Efficiency. Yeah. yeah. And I was a very unathletic kid growing up. So I didn't have the physical ability to do what Savion was doing or what even 
kids my age were able to do at the time. So I had to figure out the most efficient way to get my body to do what they were asking me to do, um, or at least to be able to feel like I could play with them. And so I, I learned really quickly about Miles Davis, who kind of developed his style almost before he fully developed his technique. So you have this idea that, all right, this is the way my body works and this is how my sound is gonna be. And then over time, you're gonna get like the chops to mm -hmm. kind of flush that out. Yeah, I mean, as great as he was, he was not considered uh, you know, one of the virtuosos of his era. There was Clifford right. Brown, there right. was Dizzy Gillespie, people like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, I'd love to get you back on the floor here and I know you're a big student of the history. Yeah. And you've actually do done performances steps. where you demonstrate some mm -hmm. techniques from various eras. Yeah, yeah sure. I wonder if you could sort of tap us through a few. Sure. Yeah, yeah be happy to. Cool. I guess we'll start with a step uh, or a rhythm that Bill Robinson would have done. Uh, I actually learned Bill Robinson's stair dance note for note uh, for a series of reconstructions that we put together back in 2009. And Bill Robinson, the big thing was that he was a left-footed dancer. And most people have a right foot dominance, so learning the stair dance was a big flip for me because I'm also right-footed. But this is, this is a step that, that is from that dance. So um, Bill Bojangles Robinson, and the stair dance, um, people might have seen it. In what movie? The, the movie is Harlem is Heaven. It's from 1938 or 39, I believe. This was his signature routine. He was very possessive of it. Uh, stories say that he invented it in 1918, but we don't really know. Um, he does some stair dancing with Shirley Temple in a later film, uh, but the, the clip from Harlem in Heaven is the signature clip. from Bill Robinson, which is most of his technique was up on the toes, more high-pitched sound. It would be viewed as more of a reference of the, the kind of jig dancing, Irish clog dancing. You get into John Bubbles, and he started dropping heels. And it was more syncopated rhythms, uh, more bass in, in the tonal landscape. This is a step that I learned from Henry Latang that he used to think of bubbles while making the step. So it's not a bubble step, but it has bubbles qualities. A lot of what that included was uh, using all all sides of the foot, all parts of the foot. Uh, while I was demonstrating the Bill Robinson step, literally my heels were off the ground for all of it. With the John Bubble step, the heels are added, and so you get the, the larger tonal landscape. You get the, the high note and the low note, um, and that allows for a lot of the syncopation that we now find in tap dancing. And, uh, you know, a lot of the mid-century, mid-20th century dancers who I've seen, you know, interviewed, seen documentaries about, 
they refer back to bubbles with special reverence. He was like this amazing innovator, I guess. Yeah. He, he was really seen as the father of rhythm tap. Um, even with the old guys in the 20s, rhythm tap, flash acts, class acts, there were all these names for different kinds of dancers. And rhythm was really this idea that you could do close to the floor very intricate syncopations while presenting yourself as a tap dancer. So after Bubbles, you start jumping into really specific dancers, right? Bill Robinson is very clear. John Bubbles is very clear. But after that, Chuck Green, Jimmy Slide, Baby Lawrence, Teddy Hale, you start getting into the improvisational dancer and the jazz, the highly integrated jazz dancer um, and it becomes very difficult to find clear uh, icons other than the dancers themselves. So uh, from Bubbles, I guess what we can do is I'll do a Chuck step, I'll do a slide step, and I'll do a Greg step. And that'll get us kind of to now. Great. So we're going to hear uh, three uh, steps in the uh, tradition of Chuck Green, Jimmy Slide, and Gregory Hines. That was a Chuck Green step. And you know, I have seen films of Chuck Green and you moved like him. You didn't just make the sounds. He had such a distinctive style. I mean, it was, yeah. How would you describe the way he moved? It was, it was almost like reactionary to the step. He, he really was very much involved with balance. And he was a tall guy. He had size 13 feet, really big feet. And it was, it was almost like a clown but not comical. You know, it, it just had that very human feeling about it. It wasn't performative necessarily, uh, not balletic, but floating. Yeah, um, there was something about him that was simultaneously awkward and super graceful. Yeah, by all means. He, he would use his body to the best of his ability. So the awkwardness of, you know, a six foot something and 13 feet is what he was working with to be as graceful as possible. Yeah, so when you were doing the Chuck Green style there, you had your arms out to your side, almost bird-like, and you were doing this crossover step, right? One foot in front of the other, alternating. So the, the crossing of the feet is a big deal in tap dancing uh, because tap dancers steal each other's steps. And this is a long tradition with tap dancers. The uh, story goes that when a tap dancer would come into New York City for their first night, the front row would be filled with other tap dancers from the city just to make sure that you weren't doing any of their steps. And then after the show, they would all meet you in the back alley of the theater to see if you could really dance. And so there'd be a challenge right after you did your performance. Um, so one of the ways that we prevent other dancers from stealing our steps is by crossing our feet. And so we start to hide where the sounds are coming from. And so it's a very functional, it's a nice picture, but it's a very functional technique. 
Wow, I had no idea. I always thought that was for purely artistic reasons. That is so interesting. Oh, man. Protecting your intellectual property. <laughs> yep, old school ways. Yeah, <laughs> totally. So the next step is going to be Jimmy Slide. And this is going to incorporate a lot of sliding. Uh, there's going to be a lot of motion involved, but you'll hear uh, some swishing sounds, and that's my feet sliding against the floor. So I hope our, uh, our listening audience could uh, hear the sliding. You were doing a lot of that sort of lateral movement and some pivoting in, in between as well. Yeah, so a lot of slides vocabulary is uh, motion-based and it comes up through the body and kind of from the core. So he would twist and from his twisting, his feet would then begin to drag across the floor as opposed to just trying to get your foot to move. And so automatically there's this sense of uh, imbalance almost, that the body is floating above the floor and the feet are in motion, but they're not lifting. It's really, really magical to see him do it. The next step I'll do is a Gregory Hines step. And Gregory, I'm talking about patience, uh, was very keen on being patient with his rhythms as well. Uh, he was a drummer, so he had that uh, sensibility about him, but he also really enjoyed the value of space. And so uh, this, is a, this is a very classic uh, Gregory Hines step. Wow. I mean, each one of these guys, you're not just catching their sound, you're catching their whole spirit. I see it, you know, in your style. It's amazing. So Gregory Hines had this way of doing that stop-start thing, right? And, um, yeah, in his whole way of ho holding his body in a crouch kind of way. He was, he was influenced by martial arts and African dance, as well as the other tap dancers that were around him. Um, he, he wanted to be masculine in his presentation um, and so you know over over time he developed this this very not aggressive but kind of engaged stance um, almost like he was about to dance even if he wasn't doing anything yeah yeah I said crouch it was like he's poised to pounce yeah exactly so from that space he's able to you know slide out and pull a turn. He's able to reach for whatever he wanted to reach for within his vocabulary. Or he could come back in and pull something really sweet. And you are tuned to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today, Feet Don't Fail Me Now, a conversation and demonstration with tap dancer and hoofing historian Andrew Nemmer. And uh, we'll get back to the interview in just a second. But I wanted to play a little sequence of uh, recordings introduced by Andrew, demonstrating some of the sounds made by the great tappers we've been talking about. What we're about to hear is Bill Bojangles Robinson, who's considered the first world-famous tap dancer. And he'll be doing a version of Ain't Misbehavin'. And you can see a lot of the sparser rhythms that he performs, the higher pitch uh, tonalities, and the aesthetic of early jazz. 
This track is Sammy Davis Jr., and he was Gregory Hines' mentor, and this is actually a live recording, so Sammy's improvising, but you can still hear kind of repetitive rhythms, and those are things that he liked. This time, the, the track is Jimmy Slide uh, playing Tangerine, and he's there with the jazz trio, so you'll have the interaction between him and the three players, and this is actually off an album that he recorded in Europe. Tap dancing as a recording form is very rare, and having a tap dancer on a full album is also very rare, so this is, this is a key kind of contribution to the, the documentary library that we have. In this next recording, we're going to hear Gregory Hines and Stanley Clark, the bassist. And they were both very close friends. Stanley actually composed the theme for Max Washington, who is the lead character in the movie Tap. And we'll hear the track basically taps. 
and it's a it's a duo improvisation on a theme. So the interaction between these two master improvisers is very, very evident in this recording. Stanley Clark on bass and tapping by the late Gregory Hines. Gregory Hines was the mentor of Andrew Nemmer, who is our guest today on the 7th Avenue Project. And uh, let's get back to that interview right now. Since we did quote a few steps, there's something interesting to be said about quoting steps. Yeah. Right, particularly today. To pull a step out like those, there's meaning behind it, especially for an improvisational dancer. It's... You're either thinking about the person or the music triggers a memory that triggers the rhythm, that triggers the person, that triggers the step. It's a function of the generation gap and the, the fact that a lot of these old guys aren't around anymore that those kinds of processes are more challenging today. And you see younger dancers pulling steps out without necessarily the weight behind them. The context? The history? What do you mean by weight? A storyteller once told me that if you tell a story as if you were there, there's weight behind the words. And if you tell a story, even if it's the same words, but as if you're, you're wherever you are while you're telling the story, the weight's lost. In quoting steps, there's a weight behind the movement that comes across to an audience. Like they can, they can feel it. It's not necessarily a tangible thing audibly, maybe, but you can feel it in the intent of the dancer that this person experienced this step with the person that they're quoting Mm -hmm. or in a situation that had a very emotional context to it for that dancer. Whereas, you know, even a dancer coming up today, 16 or 17, that's never met Gregory Hines might not be able to find a situation to get that kind of intent or that kind of weight. Um, It's not impossible. It's just more challenging. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's one of the hard things. That's one of the hard things for me to accept uh, in an oral history. Mm. Hmm. So you you talk about the weight, um, which I took to mean, a sort of personal connection to the people who created these steps, mm-hmm. not just sort of abstractly picking something up from you know a lesson or a textbook, but actually knowing who created this. When I quote this, I know 
that this is coming from Gregory Hines or this is coming from Jimmy Slide or Honey Coles or John Bubbles, you know, that I am part of a family, a tribe. I'm part of a... Yeah, there's a, there's a tradition there. Yeah, there's a tradition of real individual people and you sense them coming through you, I guess. Mm-hmm. Now, here's a question I think a lot of people might be wondering about. A lot of the greats, in fact, almost all the ones we've been talking about so far are African-American, mm-hmm. the great innovators. Yeah. Um, is this an African-American art form that white folks have gotten the benefit of uh, in the way that jazz came mostly out of the African-American experience? So the, the, way, the way that I've kind of begun to approach this, particularly at this, at this point in my life, is that tap dancing is fundamentally an American art form. And it wouldn't have happened the same way unless multiple cultures intersected here in this, in this country under the conditions that they did. Uh, that being said, a lot of the improvisational nature and a lot of key aspects of the art form can be traced back to both um, Irish traditional dancing, not performative, and African traditional dancing. Um, there, the stereotypes are that the Irish dancing is very rigid and very strict, and the African dancing is very improvisational. Mm-hmm. And there are actually very improvisational, very loose dancing in Ireland, and there's they're very strict vocabulary in some African percussive dances. So. What we have in tap dancing is this idea that one subculture can't really own a craft, mm-hmm. right? And that's, it's really challenging to deal with that in, in the context of America, mm-hmm. right? Because identity can be tied to your contribution to culture. So for me, my, my preferences and the people that I've come to love and the rhythms that kind of drew me in all came from the non-performative tradition of tap dancing. The, the tap dancing that was more improvisational, that was more integrated with the music of the time, that had more of a reconciliation of a personal story than a flat performance. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where I draw the line. Mm-hmm. It's how close to one's own humanity can you get an art form? And if you're doing that with cooking, you're doing that with cooking. If you're doing that with painting, you're doing that with painting. And the tap dancers who did that primarily were African-American. Um, and those are the ones that I was drawn to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One thing that did happen, of course, is because African-Americans were so pushed to the side for so long and unrecognized for their accomplishments, is that the face of tap dancing on the big screen was often a Fred Astaire, or Ginger Rogers, maybe a Donald O'Connor, or Gene, Ke- uh, Gene Kelly, or you know, just sure. mel- many yeah. others, and, and, and a Shirley Temple whose sidekick was, was this- Bill Bojangles Robinson. Yeah, who yeah. was this master dancer. Yeah. The, ch- the challenge is in the documentation yeah. right now. Yeah, And it's, it's in really understanding the fundamental fact that within an art form, there's always the commercial aesthetic and there's the people who do it just because. Oftentimes those might overlap. Oftentimes they definitely don't. You know, and the easy art form to think about is singing. 
When you think of for every lead male pop vocalist, how many lead male singers do we have in the world? And how many of those do we never hear? And so something that, you know, we work on a lot in terms of the Tap Legacy Foundation is making sure that as much of the documentation that we have access to as possible is put on the same playing field. So that if you go and you dive into the oral history, so to speak, which includes photos and programs and uh, audio recordings or video recordings, do you see Pops and Louie when you see, you know, a stare? Mm -hmm. Do you see a Bubbles when you see a Kelly? You know, do you know that Kelly came from vaudeville with his brothers and Astaire had the act with his sister, you know, so that there is a common lineage from American theater into American film that once the platform was bigger, the separation in terms of the access became greater, you know, in terms of the race divide. But that doesn't mean that the talent pool wasn't there. And it doesn't mean that they didn't come from a similar place in terms of skill sets. You know, John Bubbles could sing, dance, tell jokes, act, because he came from vaudeville. And same way with Fred Astaire and same way with Gene Kelly. Like anybody who came from that American theatrical tradition was an integral triple threat automatically. Yeah. So yeah. the movie musical had this talent pool that was amazing that they only had to polish for film because vaudeville had been training all these guys for years. Uh, Bill Robinson was a vaudeville star. John Bubbles was a vaudeville star. Uh, the Whitman sisters were vaudeville stars, you know, talking about singers. How about the Nicholas brothers? By all means. Yeah, yeah the Nicholas brothers, the Barry brothers, the Four Step brothers. They, they all came from the theatrical tradition first and then moved to film. And there you start having this this idea that, okay, well, how much does the commercial aspect of things affect an art form? Some people say that the Nicholas Brothers caused a lot of pain for a lot of dancers. <laughs> <laughs> because once they became famous, every nightclub in the country wanted a Nicholas Brothers lookalike act. So all these dancers had to start doing splits and flips when they weren't built to be uh, acrobatic. I, I was refreshing my memory watching the uh, Nicholas Brothers. And for people who may not know them, Stormy Weather, for instance, famous routine where they would leap. They'd go down the stairway, each in turn leaping over the other and landing in a full split, you know, from a very high jump down to a, a lower step. Yeah. And it hurts to just watch it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's not it's not an easy thing to see, but it's amazing. <laughs> and they were so graceful too. I mean, yeah. there few people have ever been more graceful than say Fayard Nicholas, right? The older, the older two brother. Brothers. Yeah, they, they were amazing. It it helps me to know that they were both of the of the shorter height <laughs> individuals. So like, their jumps weren't as high as say a Chuck, Chuck Green doing that. Uh -huh. But other than that, yeah, I mean. They were some of the most beautiful dancers, and that clip from Stormy Weather is probably the quintessential performance by them on film. Mm. Just to show how talented they were, even at a young age, though, you, you have a clip um, on your YouTube channel mm -hmm. of them both as almost as kids. Oh, Lucky Numbers. Lucky Numbers. Yeah. Oh, man, it's so good. Yeah, I mean, they were child stars. Yeah. They really were. Uh, Bunny Briggs recounts a story of him hanging outside the Cotton Club 
and opening the door for the car for the Nicholas Brothers. Like that's what he used to do. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. And this is this is a world famous tap dancer. Like yeah. he was Duke Ellington's personal tap dancer for years. But that's what he was doing as a kid. And so that's how famous the Nicholas Brothers were when they were little. Uh, there were a lot of brother acts, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was, uh, was it the Condos Brothers? Condos Brothers. Uh, uh, they were... Condos. Condos, yeah. Condos. They and were, these were white guys. These were white guys from Philly. Uh-huh. Uh, their father had a, a deli, a restaurant, just outside of the Standard Theater in Philly. So all the vaudeville acts would come to the restaurant and hang. And the Condos Brothers kind of got into the business that way, the story goes. There's a elder brother had an outside partner. They split. Elder brother got elder brother was Frank. Frank got Nick into the act. Frank retired. Nick got Steve into the act. So it was always a duo. Uh, but there were three brothers. And Steve was quite famous as an innovator, yeah, rhythmic mm-hmm. innovator. Steve Steve was basically the postmodern deconstructionist tap dancer. Really, what's that mm-hmm. mean? So prior to say the fifties or sixties tap dance really was built around this idea of steps and building very short combinations that you could repeat. And somewhere along the line, Honey Coles, Bunny Briggs, maybe a couple other dancers decided to do away with the break. So phrasing wise, you wouldn't have six bars and a break and then six bars and a break. And the break, remind us what the break is. So the way the phrasing functioned was you would have one step that you would repeat, say... To do the eat, do bap. To do the eat, do bap. To do the eat, do bap. To do to take it, take it, take it. To do the eat, do bap. To do the eat, do bap. To do the eat, do bap. To do to do bap. To do bap. To eat, do bap. So that little variation is the break. Yeah, and the break functioned to let the audience know that this phrase is ending, and we might go into another one. And so at some point, the break was done away with, and you had these dancers doing what's called continuation. And so they would just dance through the break and go into a new phrase or just keep on dancing. And they would keep track of the music, but the audience would have to also keep track of the music because the dancer wasn't helping. And then Steve came along and started dealing with the patterns themselves and saying, okay, well, if this is my pattern, what does it sound like? And what's the tonal arc And then are there any patterns within this pattern that I can accent and bring out? And so you have the potential for a tap dancer to do multiple lines while dancing. So you have a short rhythm and then you have all the other notes in between it that you also play. So what'd that sound like? Let's see. All right. So you had two things going on. You had this fast, high sort of ground rhythm, and then you superimposed on that these sort of stomps. The stomps are going bump, 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 bump. Those are accents. Yeah. And Steve's 
body of work really kind of evolved that area of tap dancing to, to a place that, you know, people are still dealing with that. You know, they're still able to go in and play for years and years to figure out, okay, well, if I, if I take this step that I know and I accent this note and this note, I now have a new rhythm. It feels completely different than if I accent these two other notes because mm. they're in different places. And then if I take that entire pattern, if I shift it over one, where does that live and how does that sound? And, you know, it's kind of the rabbit hole. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> of, yeah. Of tap dancing, meaning you can just experiment with it forever. Mm -hmm. You just keep going. You, you really can because it's it it echoes what I've come to know about Indian classical percussion and that tradition of three thousand years of just math or nature, you know, depending on what you take to in terms of explaining it. But pattern after pattern after pattern of rhythms within cycles mm -hmm. and finding out where the rhythms sit in the cycle and if you move the rhythm within the cycle can you put two and if you do two where does the cycle sit now and like all these games of like what does it sound like and where does it end and do we end together yeah it's definitely a brain trip you're reminding me of um katak dance mm-hmm Chitresh Das. Yep. I've seen him do demonstrations. We said, now I'm going to do a pattern. This is a style of Indian dance that is uh, percussive use of the feet, bare feet, not mm -hmm. tap shoes. And he said, now I'm going to do something. I'm going to start with a rhythmic cycle of 10 beats. And I'm going to, then I'm going to go down to nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Yep. All in this integrated dance. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Katak is the, the dance partner of Indian classical music, right? And the percussive tradition in Indian classical music is very, very deep. So they have, they have a vocal tradition where the syllables are related very specifically to places on the drum or whatever instrument that they're using. And then they also have you know, an oral tradition of patterns. So nothing's really written down. It's just these are compositions. And composition we think of maybe like a two-minute or three-minute song their compositions might be a 12-second rhythm. And that rhythm is a composition, and it's a rhythm that you then play with or play around, and that's your theme for a 15-minute solo or a half-hour solo. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think and those, those, are, those are really, really deep understandings of the way rhythm functions in time. Well, Andrew, um, you've introduced us to a lot of the history of tap. Um, I want to know how you fit in and what you're doing with the art form now. Gosh. So I think, it, I think it's always dangerous for an artist to self-reflect. <laughs> but Well, I could suggest that <laughs> I, you I seem to have taken all these streams and internalized them. I think art is a beautiful place to try and reconcile one's story. You know, being the son of immigrants and... I've never been back to Lebanon, so I've kind of been a, a wandering homeless person, for lack of a better analogy, uh, for the majority of my life. And coming to a place where I've begun to understand that tap dancing is a medium for other things. It can be used to tell stories. It can be used to emote. It can be used to derive emotion from an audience. A lot of what I've attempted to do in you know the past 10, 15 years being on my own as a dancer uh, has been to work those ideas out 
and see in the context of an ensemble, can you, can you allow people to maintain some sort of individualism? So I have a dance company. It's called Cats Paying Dues. That's been the place where not only have I had the opportunity to share some of the lessons that I've learned, but my company members have been patient with me to allow me to experiment with this idea of can you get eight people in a room and commit them to a piece of content that is demanding in and of itself that because of that demand, their approach assimilates, but they never lose their individualism. Does that mean you, you set up a structure, but they improvise inside of it uh, based on their own aesthetics? And Improvisation and choreography. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll set the routines and have maybe some spots within the routines mm. where there's improvisation, but none of our choreography is written down, and tap dancing doesn't have a written tradition, so... We are actors with no script. Uh-huh. So the choreography functions as our script. And we say, okay, so we're going to learn this scene. We're going to learn this piece of choreography. Now, as you continue to do it, you're going to find your way through it. And so you end up with this very, very interesting balance as an ensemble where everybody retains their individualism, but the commitment to the work is evident. And that's very different than saying, I'm going to have 10 improvisers on the stage, that the commitment to the work is secondary to their individualism, or I'm going to have a completely unison line. And then trying to sit like in the middle of that tension and Mm -hmm. see what happens. Mm -hmm. Has that made it to to video in any form that people could look at online? Yeah, we have some clips. The company's called Cats Paying Dues. Uh, They have their own YouTube channel. Um, and you can you can get to it from my website as well. Great, and uh, that's andrewnemmer.com. N e m r. Yeah, the okay. only four letter word my mom <laughs> let me say. <laughs> oh man, so that's one of the things you've been doing. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I look at your resume and I see that you've done a lot of different things. Yeah, a lot of the tap. other work that that I really enjoy is working with musicians. So I've found myself partnering with everyone from Grammy-nominated cellists to virtuosic hammered dulcimer players to the old-time jazz scene. And it really stretches my understanding of my own craft. You know, someone like Max E.T., who's a hammered dulcimer player, we have a duo project. So it's him on hammered dulcimer and me on taps, and I function as all the percussive balance for what he's doing. And the nature sonically of the hammered dulcimer as an instrument is it vibrates a lot. And so there's a lot of sympathetic uh, strings going on. So you have lots of harmonics. And the tap sound is very striking. Like it's very discreet and clicky. It's like slow. It's well, it's tight. It doesn't resonate. Not at all. So I come in and I'm slicing all through what it is that he's doing. And so that tension and that dynamic allows for some really interesting uh, play between us. You know, I have an old-time jazz quartet in which there is no drummer except me. So I get to play with a bassist, a banjo player, and a clarinetist, and we're playing tunes from like the 10s and 20s and 30s of last century. 
which is you know the early the early days of tap dancing with metal on the bottom of their shoes you know post bottle caps right right you know? <laughs> yeah and then i have a one man show called andrew j nimmer and friends uh, so it's sort of a one man show in which i get to tell my story and kind of talk about how i fell in love with tap dancing meeting greg and attempting the Bill Robinson stair dance and what that moment was like. And so using, using the medium of tap dancing to tell a very human story. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the challenges that I've faced in the past couple of years has been with the fact that a lot of my mentors have passed away. You know, they were very old when I met them and I was fairly young. And so, as I grew older, they grew older, and you know, I went to my first funeral when I was twelve, wow. which is relatively dark, except for the fact that everybody danced at the funeral. <sighs> so, you know, and every tap dance funeral, people tap dance, and that's the way that we send them off. So you've danced at funerals? Sure. Yeah, many. Is it a sad dance? No, not really. I mean, the, f the first one, I didn't know what was going on, and everybody was like, you're going to come up and we're all going to do this. I said, okay. All together at once. Yeah. Huh. And then, you know, a few of the others, it's we all get in a circle and everybody takes some, and sometimes you're quoting their steps, and sometimes you're just emoting what it is that you feel at the moment. And it's gotten to a point with me where it's, it's just a remembrance and a celebration. And you want to remember that person for the contribution that they gave to the art form and for who they were. And I think that's allowed me to take those moments with less sadness and with more, with more thankfulness for having spent the time with those people. Gregory Hines um, passed away in uh, 2003. Yeah. Did you dance at his memorial? Yeah. Yeah, there was a there's a large funeral in L. A. I don't even remember how it happened, but at some point, every tap dancer in the church got up and was at the front of the church. It wasn't performative; it was just this is what we do, and this is how like we have to do this in order to make this right and to send him off. And I mean, he was he was put to rest with a pair of tap shoes on his feet. Oh man, were you tapping some of the steps that he taught you, or you learned from him? At I that don't moment? remember. You don't know. It was just coming remember. from the heart. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, Andrew, we talked a lot about you know the the history that you have managed to assimilate into your body, um, and we talked a little bit about your career. But I'd love you to um, choose a recording that really captures your style, uh, something that someone who knows tap dance could say, "Oh yeah, that's Andrew Nemmer." There's, there's one tune that I've used to peg very specific moments in my career. And the tune is Milestones. You know, it's either Milestones or Miles Tones, depending on how you read the word. And it's a Miles Davis tune. They used to play it burning fast. And I use it to open up every one of my one-man shows. So I think we'll listen to that.
What's it feel like to be really in the zone as a tap dancer, where it's really working, where, as you put it, you're requesting things of your feet and they are granting your requests? It actually doesn't feel like anything. There's no conscious sensory reaction, so it feels like you're not doing anything and it feels like nothing is happening until you're done. And then you can step back and the physical memory manifests itself. And you can look and you, you, you feel the exertion of energy and you feel kind of what you've just done. You may not remember any of it, but you know something just happened. Something good. Hopefully. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. Yeah, no, my pleasure. And we'll post more information on Andrew Nemmer and some links to some great historical tap videos on our website, seventhavenueproject.com. This has been the Seventh Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back on the air next week. We are online 24-7 at the aforementioned website on iTunes, on SoundCloud, via your mobile device, your smartphone, your tablet. Use one of those podcast apps, and you can listen to us any old time. Thank you.